0: That's why there's Dr. Clapper. Dr. Clapper is the former head of orthopedic surgery at Cedar Sinai. The Weekend Warrior show with Dr. Clapper presented by Cedar Sinai. Hey Dr. Clapper. How are, you? How are you? Saturday mornings from 7 to 9. Silence
1: is golden when you can't think of a good answer.
0: <laughs> yes, doc, I love your show. Now here he is, Dr. Robert Clapper.
1: Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. So excited this week. Back in the operating room at Cedars. We've been at a surgery center for these last couple of months because of COVID. But we're starting to slowly open up the operating rooms. And it's thanks, big shout out to the great Brian Croft at Cedars. And certainly the nurses, the staff. its I'm so proud to be a part of it for all these 32 years. Wow. COVID finally starting to quiet down a little bit so we can go back to somewhat normal love it i want to tell some stories and i want to talk to claire Cunning at 815 but the lines are all lit up and i kind of feel a a duty to take care of the weekend warrior nation so let's take one the number is 877-710-ESPN let's go to rick with his elbow you're on with dr clapper how can i help hey good morning dr clapper hope all is well all is well how Um, young are you what do you do for a living rick
2: i'm a district manager for a custodial company in l.a Uh, wow and uh, I'm going to be 45 in April. And I've noticed that uh,
1: at my young age, um, I lift weights. And, it's, you know, it's, I'm not healing as much as
2: I used to, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> a decade ago. And uh, as a, re- you know, maybe a few months back, I noticed my elbow started, like, flaring up a little bit more, especially when I do overhand curls. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what's your opinion on that? And, I mean, should I take it a little easier? I mean, you know.
1: So, if, so do me a favor. Are you driving right now? Yeah. Which elbow is it, right or left? Uh, The left one. Okay. So hold the steering wheel with your right hand, and I want you to straighten your elbow out, palms up. Is the elbow pain on the thumb side of your elbow or the little finger side of your elbow? The little finger. Ah, interesting. Do you have any numbness or tingling? A
2: little numbness from here and there, um, and uh, tingling uh, very rarely, but I, but yeah, so,
1: somewhat, sometimes it flares up. So the difference between flexion of your fingers versus extending your fingers. To hold a can of soda, you grasp it, you grip it. That's You actually have to extend your wrist, which is the opposite of now what your fingers are going to do. It's fascinating that you extend wow. your wrist in order to flex your fingers. The, the little finger, the pinky side of your elbow is where the flexor muscles anchor themselves to the bone. We actually call that a golfer's elbow, believe it or not. And the funny bone nerve, the ulnar nerve, is what lives there. The thumb side of the elbow with palms up is actually where the extensor tendons that extend your, wrist, extend your fingers anchor themselves from so you're dealing with grip you're dealing with how you're holding the barbell yes we can talk about not going overhead anymore with your curls because you're going to do damage to your shoulder and your rotator cuff and at 35 you're indestructible at 45 forget about it and your body you're really lucky rick because your body is whispering to you most people end up in my office because their body doesn't give them the whisper first telling them troubles coming their bodies shout at them and in many cases it's too late and I have to operate on them so yes you have to change and modify not just wear a sleeve so you can damage yourself more not just let a doctor shoot you with cortisone so the pain gets numbed, not take a pill that the drug companies want you to take so that you can do more damage but not feel it no I love pain Rick because it, it's your body uniquely telling you that you're tearing some, something. Mm. Just like Anthony Davis is taking it easy and played last night and did so well, but he felt a soreness in his Achilles tendon. He's letting his body whisper to him, not waiting for it to shout. That's the advice I give you. You're smart enough to lift differently exactly how to do that, that's where an elegant trainer comes in or a physical therapist. But you're smart enough, I believe, to do this on your own. Change the angle, change the weights, change the duration, change how you're doing it. You need to look for pain-free. Your body is telling you the answer when you do that. And thanks so much for checking in, Rick. And do me a favor, you're a total stranger to me. I just help you. You today find a total stranger. Do something nice for them. That's how you'll be thanking me. Will do, doctor.
2: Thank you. Appreciate
1: you. All right. God bless you and have a good day. All right, warriors, let's get into today's topic. My guest, I'm so excited at 8.15, is Claire Cunning, who owns a company called Art Muse LA. And we're going to break down four paintings. I cannot wait to do this with her because you know, if you listen to the show, How much I see the connection between surgery, what I do for a living, sports, which I love the Lakers, and I love the Rams, and the New York Jets, and how much I love art. I'm a sculptor. I travel to Michelangelo's quarry and sculpt. It sounds crazy, but sports, surgery, and art are the same to me. How did I develop this love for art? It came from a professor in college that changed my life. And believe it or not, I have sound bites, which I'm gonna play in a few minutes, of this man. He passed away, but I found on YouTube a lecture he gave about a painter I never heard of before, but it doesn't matter because I want you to hear how a person can change your life by being a teacher, by teaching you how to not just see things, not just look at things, but to drink in what you're seeing with your eyes. Let's first start with where that occurs in sports. There's a reason Magic Johnson is one of the greatest, if not the greatest basketball player who ever lived. Listen to him giving a lecture to little kids about the difference between seeing and drinking with your eyes number one
3: you know when you're born they tell us we only have two eyes but that's not true actually we have about 100 eyes we just got to train ourselves to use all those eyes for instance say we're coming down the court on a fast break now you're looking to see who's behind you who's in front of you who's running fast who's running slow where's the defense who's free who's got a shot who can block that shot Who's open? The passing lanes, the cracks, the seams. You're just moving fast. Now, who's gonna see all of that with just two eyes?
1: I just love that. He's right. We're not gonna just look at a painting. We're not gonna just look at it inside your knee at a ligament. We're not gonna just look at that car on the highway going past you and say, oh, that's a black Mercedes. I want you to look through the window. Is it a man, is it a woman? Is it an older person? Is it a younger person? Are they wearing glasses? How are they holding the steering wheel? Do they look like they're paying attention? Just your life becomes so much deeper if you listen to what Magic is saying. He's talking about basketball. I'm talking about life and how much we can learn from people who know how to drink with their eyes. Number two.
3: You got to train yourself. I say it again, you got to train yourself to use everything, to see the whole floor, to use all those eyes. Now when I look side to side, I see a fan, I see two ladies, I see five men, I see a chair, I see a ladder, I see a basket, I see some bleachers, I see all of those things. Now that's an exercise you can use for your eyes, because passing is with your hands and your eyes. And
1: finally, number three,
3: we're about to go into passing, and I really love this part of the game because passing, you make somebody else score two points. You set the offense up for another guy, and that's mental part of the game because you have to understand what type of pass you're going to make, whether it's a bounce pass, a chess pass, an overhead pass, or a baseball pass.
1: That's why LeBron James at 36 years old last night with his court vision, with his drinking with his eyes, showed John Morant, the Rookie of the Year, the opposite of being 36 years old, how it's done. Because he can drink with his eyes. What does it sound like when you don't drink with your eyes, when you just see the surface? In sports, I love this. Tommy Lasorda. Dave Kingman, 1978, hits three home runs against Tommy Lasorda's Dodgers. He's so pissed off. They ask him, what happened? What did Kingman do? What's your opinion? Here's an example where you're just at the surface, and you'll hear even Tommy Lasorda apologize about giving an answer that's just so superficial, but it is
2: hilarious. Number four. Can you give us just a few basic comments about your feelings on the game? All right, man. Well, naturally,
4: I feel bad about losing a ball game like that. There's, uh, there's no way you should lose that ball game, and that uh, just doesn't make sense. Which what's your opinion of Kingman's performance? What's my opinion of Kingman's performance? <laughs> what the <laughs> you think is my opinion of it? I think I'll <laughs> put that in. I don't <laughs> opinion of his performance. Uh,
3: next,
4: he beat us with three home runs. What can you mean what is my opinion of his performance? (laughs) How can you ask me a question like that? What is my opinion of his of of his performance? (laughs) He hit three home runs. (laughs) I'm (laughs) off to lose a game. Finally. And you asked me my opinion of his performance. Well, that's a tough question to ask me, isn't it? What is my opinion of his performance? Yes, it is. I asked it, and you gave me an answer. Well, I didn't give you a good answer because I'm mad. I mean, well, that wasn't a good question. That's a tough question to ask me right now. What is my opinion of his performance? I mean, you want me to tell you what my opinion of his performance is? they just did. That's right. <laughs> Guy hits three home runs against us.
1: Even Tommy Lasorda says, I didn't give you a good answer. Because of anybody, the reason he was such a great manager is he actually could drink with his eyes. Changing Oral Hershiser's name to Bulldog to inspire him tells us that. But here he says, I didn't give you a good answer. I didn't drink with my eyes. I just kept the answer at the surface. It's hilarious. But it's the difference between Magic Johnson speaking about "You've got a hundred eyes." Now I want you to hear the man that taught me this, that taught me how to see deeply, that taught me how to see and drink with my eyes. He's he's died. May he rest in peace. His name is David Rosand. But I found on YouTube a lecture he gave about an artist I never heard of before, Paulo very amazing. in 1562 he made a painting called the marriage of cana and he's going to analyze it for us and teach us why the sky is so blue because he discovered the contract that the monks who hired this painter in the contract says we're going to give you a blue made of lapis lazuli because they had to mix their own paints it's expensive but it'll last forever he finds the contract and educates us as to why the blue is so crisp. I wouldn't know this otherwise. How to not just see the painting, but understand the depth of the painting. First, let's listen to the man who taught me how to do this, David Roseanne, in 1975 at Columbia as a college student. Number one.
5: I wanted to talk about... Uh, the, the really new and increasingly profound appreciation of a painter who has for most of his, let's just say, um, uh, fame, been celebrated as a decorative painter. And this was, the, the, I mean, the, the idea of, of, of being a decorative painter was was never quite pejorative, but he wasn't considered as serious as Titian or Tintoretto.
1: He's basically saying, you're not a fine painter, You're a house painter, you're decorative. You're not the same as Titian. An insult, Norman Rockwell, you're just an illustrator. But no, you're about to learn why this man changed my life. I ended up majoring in art history. Instead of biology, typically what you were as a pre-med in college, I majored in art history because of this man sitting in his class, And he told the class, I don't give A's, so I hope none of you pre-med who want to get A's and everything to get into medical school. You're in the wrong class. But the more he talked, the more I said, I'm going to take a chance with my life. I'm staying in this class because this guy is amazing. Number two.
5: We had a sense that somehow justice was not being done to a really great painter. And so a younger generation of scholars began to probe those pictures. And also to probe the biography. So, most recently, we know more about Veronese's background, the family that he comes from, from Como, a family of stonecutters.
1: And you're going to now see. He's going to show us paintings where there's sculptures in them, and architecture, and marble columns, as he pays tribute to his family of stonecutters. I wouldn't know this otherwise. You're just looking at a painting. Okay, that's nice. But the depth this Professor Roseanne gives you blew me away. Let's continue, number three.
5: And I want to show you some of the results because these results, it's not only here, but also a lot of the activity that's been going on in museums with restoration, keep opening up new aspects of this painter. Aspects that were celebrated in the past, but have been covered over by retouches and varnishing and so forth. And it's the cleaning that very often gives us a new painter.
1: Here's a painting he's gonna analyze called the Triumph of Mordecai. They cleaned it, they restored it because of being a ceiling painting and the, the smoke from candles. They didn't have electric lights 500 years ago. And that soot covers the painting. So they go and clean it and what do they find? That the blue sky starts to disappear because Roseanne knows the kind of paint he used. There's good paint, there's bad paint. Depth, he's teaching us number
5: four. One of the things that that is important to recognize is how much we have lost over time and in this particular case um, what we have lost I mean this is this was all retouching this is all repainting that's been taken away for the blue sky. Veronese unfortunately used smalt and that just chemically changes with time and uh, becomes more transparent and the blue of the skies in many of his paintings has been lost number five. He is an absolute master of the brush. There's very little in the way of preparatory drawings here. They're not, I mean, they're hardly known. I mean, just a few sketches maybe for a, a figure here and there, pen sketches. And there, is, there are no cartoons used. In other words, there were no full-scale drawings that were then applied to the canvas uh, as guides. He essentially, from what one can tell from the the restoration, uh, he <clears throat> essentially Drew in the, the composition roughly with, with uh, charcoal, fixed it in parts with, with, um, with brush and, 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 and paint, uh, and then built it up, built it up with pure color.:
1: And now he's going to point this massive painting. It's the largest canvas in the Louvre. It's gigantic. He's going to point out a dog, a dog with whiskers, and look at what he's going to do with that information and teach you. Next.
5: This marvelous dog, uh, and you can see down here, these are still, these are uh, some of the, the original charcoal uh, drawings in the dog's whiskers. But this is an artist who builds with color and builds with stroke. Again, not a novelty. Everybody's known this and celebrated it since, I mean, from his own career but we're learning more and more about it, the the sheer confidence with which he he approached uh, this kind of pictorial construction.
1: He's taught you that they are stone cutters, that's where he comes from, so look for all those examples of architecture and stone in his paintings. He's taught you that this is a confident painter because the charcoal is still there in the dog's whiskers. This is a depth that Magic Johnson is talking about. It's not just two eyes; you got a hundred eyes. The Marriage of Cana, fifteen sixty-two, number
5: ten. A marriage at Cana, uh, that he did for the refectory of San Giorgio Maggiore, uh, a painting that uh, has suffered more than any other from this, this the, 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 the sobriquet of being uh, of decorative. Next. Number 11. The painting itself, uh, as I said, we, we know an awful lot about it. We have the contract for it. We know uh, that here the blue, by the way, the blue is in perfectly is in excellent condition in the sky because we know from the contract that uh, ultramarine blue, that is lapis lazuli, was supplied to the painter. He knows the contract
1: because a, a painter can't afford to have lapis lazuli in his studio, it's too expensive. But he knows that the monks who were wealthy said, you're gonna make this painting in the contract and we're gonna give you the lapis lazuli. And that's why 500 years later, that sky is still blue, number 12.
5: This is not, neither gold nor ultramarine was kept in a workshop. It was just too expensive. If the patron wanted it, they paid extra. And in this case, the the, the Benedictine monks of, of San Giorgio Maggiore had, had the means to pay for it, whatever they wanted.
1: And finally, number 13 and 14.
5: One of the joys of looking at Veronese, as I said at the beginning with the San Sebastiano pictures, is just how he paints, how brush strokes become anatomy. And um, one day, if I have time, I will do a study of, or at least give a lecture on, the painting of toes. And the two greatest toe painters of the 16th century are Michelangelo and Veronese, approaching in very different ways, but the nice thing about, about the, the exhibition, of course, is that the toes are all on eye level, and so you can focus on it. Well, it's also, it's also what we would call a Morellian detail. When you see a toe that is painted rather too fluidly, it ain't the master. When you see a toe that, that really is giving you some articulation, even right down to those little digits, um, that's, that's, that's the painter at work. He's declaring Listen that there. he wants to be different. And this yeah, is this thing there. that takes us into that professional world.
1: I just cannot get enough of listening to him break it down. He's a Vince Scully talking about a baseball player. He's Magic Johnson teaching you how to drink with your eyes. And coming up next, one of my favorite guests in these 10 years on the radio is Claire Cunning, who's going to teach us more how to drink with our eyes. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN.
6: Check out the Weekend Warrior Facebook. Know your posts. posts. One of the most complicated areas of the body. ACL, PCL, MCL. Patella supplication. Really? Dr. Clapper translates the language of your knee. Dr. Clapper. On the Weekend Warrior Facebook page. Whoa. Simply type in Weekend Warrior in the search bar and click on Doc's picture. Wow! Your knee feels better already. Damn right. Like, follow, and feel better. Hello there. With the Weekend Warrior Facebook page.
2: All right, it's Max. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday morning than with my friend Dr. Clapper. And the weekend warrior show. What's going on, LA? This is Kobe Bryant. It's a junior super deluxe. You gotta be kidding me. Start your weekend off right, listening to the weekend warrior show with Dr. Clapper. Ding dang dong. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers.
1: (laughs) Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. Great Snoop Dogg, gin and juice, because we're drinking with our eyes. I'm so excited to be joined with my next guest, the great Claire Cunning. Claire, thanks so much for being with us this morning. I'm so excited to talk to you.
7: Thank you, it's great to hear you, Dr. Clapper. Thanks for inviting Uh, me.
1: It's great because it's been 10 years now that I've been on the radio at ESPN, and it's because of people like you to teach us how to see with our eyes. And for me, I decided, well, Claire's gonna be my guest this Saturday. Let me see if the man who first taught me how to drink with my eyes that made me love art the way you make us love art, how to see things. If they ever on YouTube recorded a lecture and I found one, I cannot believe it. And just to hear his voice and his command of the language, it reminds me of you. I want to play a soundbite, not from him but actually one from the world of sports, because it's almost as if Claire Cunning is doing a Laker game, because (laughs) the greatest Laker, Magic Johnson, is about to teach us a lesson about seeing art. Let's play this, Steve Poulet, number one.
3: You know, when you're born, they tell us we only have two eyes, but that's not true. Actually, we have about 100 eyes. We just gotta train ourselves to use all those eyes. For instance, say we're coming down the court on a fast break. Now you're looking to see who's behind you, who's in front of you, who's running fast, who's running slow, where's the defense, who's free, who's got a shot, who can block that shot, who's open, the passing lanes, the cracks, the seams, you're just moving fast. Now, who's going to see all of that with just two eyes?
1: There you go. You're, that's Claire County. You're about to <laughs> teach us how to see with more than just two eyes. So we just talked a little bit about that blue sky and the marriage of Cana from 1562. Tell yes. us, teach us a little bit about that painting and about the artist, Paolo Veronese.
7: Sure, sure. He, um, it, what's interesting is that Veronese is a name that we know him by, but that's a nickname. And it indicates to everybody that he is a man who was born in the area of the, the town of Verona in mm-hmm. Italy. His birth name was Paolo Cagliari, but we all know him as Veronese, so that's, I think that's what we'll, what we'll all go by. So he was um, invited, as Dr. Rosen had told us, he was invited by the Benedictine monks, in um, in the in the area of Venice they had they were building their monastery on an island the island of st. George and so they were in the process of building this big fabulous monastery and in their dining room what is called a refectory they had this vast wall and they wanted to fill it with a scene that would be appropriate for a dining room so they they went to the Bible and they found a description from, the, from John. Um, and they, in the description, it, it told about the first miracle that Jesus had, had, um, had, had displayed in public to indicate that he was the Son of God. And so the miracle was about Jesus and his mother Mary being invited to a wedding at, this, uh, at the town of Cana in Galilee. We don't even know who the bride and groom are, but we know that they went to this wedding. (laughs) There was a big feast. They, at the, in the midst of the feast, it seems they ran out of wine. And Mary, the mother of Jesus, looked at her son and said, we have to have more wine. So Jesus told the, the server, the servers to go to the big jugs that were, and fill them with water and they filled them with water and then he said now pour it out and what happened was that the water had been turned to wine so this was wow. a miracle and that's that's the kind of underlying story behind the painting but back to the benedictines they wanted a painting for their dining room so what better than a grand elegant feast so veronese was commissioned as dr rosen has told us to create this painting the painting mm-hmm. filled a whole wall and its dimensions. You, you mentioned this, Dr. Clapper. It is, it's huge. It's the largest painting on canvas in the Louvre in Paris. Mm-hmm. And the story why it's there is quite interesting. But it, it filled the wall of this monastery, the dining room at San Giorgio. Um, it's 22 feet long wow. and 32 feet high. Mm-hmm. And the last point that Dr. Rosen said is that he loves how Veronese paints toes. There are one hundred and thirty figures in this <laughs> banquet scene, and so I calculated there are at least a thousand toes that we can see here in the <laughs> painting. And and he said he also said, and everybody laughed at, at the lecture that he was giving, that um, we can see the toes because they're at eye level. So this painting was hung high on the wall. So it would be right over the heads of the monks as they sat and ate right under this banquet scene. So basically looking at this painting, it's, it's really daunting at first because it's such a big canvas and it has 130 figures in it. So I think first glance, you think, especially going to a museum like the Louvre in Paris where this painting is now, you pass by this and you think, oh, that's going to take a lot of time. And it will. I mean, one would have to find a comfortable spot to stand or preferably sit and really let this painting take you in. Mm. And the way it's painted is intended for you to feel as though you're kind of entering this scene, like you've come upon this beautiful banquet, um, a Mm. long table that is Mm. filled with people. And in Mm. front of the table are all of the servants And then there's a cluster of three musicians, and in those three musicians, we believe, is a self-portrait of the artist Veronese, who's decided to attend this wonderful feast um, on his own. (laughs) I mean, it's it, and and you also said that there is architecture here, and what Veronese has done is he has basically framed this banquet scene between these two elegant kind of. well, complicated structures of buildings with columns. So it almost looks like you're back in the ancient world of of the Romans. And the perspective takes you back to see this, this kind of square area in the upper portion of this big, big canvas that's filled with blue sky and white clouds. And that blue is the lapis lazuli the most expensive pigment that a painter would use in the Renaissance. This was painted, remember, in 1562. Um, and so this blue is this really brilliant, um, very kind of, it's a robin's egg blue, um, basically. And it's very clear, it's pristine. And so it's that blue, the blue of the heavens that we see that is atop this gathering of people. So the painting is just, it is so full. We would have to go to, to Paris to really get <laughs> to, to really take it in. But you want to look at the people. The people are all dressed in very elegant, fine clothing. The clothing is mostly um, of the, um, the contemporary to Veronese's time. So he wants people to look at this at the time when it was painted and imagine that that scene actually took place On the island of st. George in Venice Mm. at the Benedictine monastery because in the back peeking up above the banquet scene is this wonderful bell tower and it's a bell tower that is part of the complex of this Benedictine monastery that was in the process of being built Um, it's just one of these wonderful very complicated very busy paintings and you want to, you know, what you want to do is kind of decide where you start to look. And maybe the first place to look is to find Jesus and Mary, these important guests at this this wedding feast. mm -hmm. And wouldn't you know, instead of the bride and groom being placed at the center of the table, guess who's there? Mary and Jesus. So they really take, they take the center place. And, of course, Mm. Jesus is the one that's going to make sure there's enough wine for the (laughs) the feast and the banquet to continue. So he's at the center. You could almost look at this painting and never find the bride and groom, who are placed all the way over to the left. And what you realize is happening, though, is a point when the main kind of the the sommelier um, is going over to them with a glass of this new wine, And he's saying to them, this wine is better than the wine we had before. (laughs) Enjoy (laughs) it.
1: All right. I want to go 400 years later to the opposite of a painter who's focusing on detail to a Mm -hmm. painter. I'm talking about Edward Hopper. I want to go 400 years later where Mm -hmm. it's almost as elegant, (laughs) but it's the opposite but I need to take a break to pay some bills. Can you just hang on the line? We're gonna talk about I will. Edward Oh, I can't wait. Edward Hopper's Nighthawks here in America in Chicago. We're talking to the great Claire Cunny from Art Muse LA. What a treat for all of us to hear her speak about art, teaching us how to drink with our eyes. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warriors show here on seven ten ESPN.
6: Hey, it's Sedano. You know there's no better way to start your Saturday than when my guy, Dr. Clapper, and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m.
2: Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. Hey, Robbie. Do you like donuts? Start your weekend off right. Listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper.
1: I love donuts.
2: Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN, 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers.
1: Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. I'm having so much fun, and I hope you are too. And I've given Claire Cunningham an assignment that we talk about four paintings. As we say in New York, forget about it. There's no way we can talk, because I don't ever (laughs) want her to stop talking about just one painting. But we'll make a turn, and we'll talk about, if you ask me what's my favorite painting in America, made in 1942. And just like you you taught us about Veronese, making himself one of the musicians in the painting at the Marriage of Cana from 1562. Lo and behold, Edward Hopper apparently has a self-portrait of himself in this painting, but it's a whole different kind of art looking at Nighthawks. Claire Cunning, teach us about, as though we're at the Art Institute of Chicago with you, looking up at this classic painting, Nighthawks, by Edward
7: Hopper. Great. And that's a wonderful point of comparison, that the two artists have decided to include themselves in the painting. In, in Edward Hopper's Nighthawks, it's interesting, it is said that he is the figure, there are only four people in the, the Nighthawks painting, whereas in Veronese's Wedding Feast at Cana we had 130. So right there, we've got it simplified, um, and it seems that Edward Hopper has placed himself as one of three clients in the wee hours of the morning, in you know, late, late at night, who's gone to this all-night diner. And he's seated with his back towards us. And if you look at this painting, and it's a small painting, this is an easel-sized painting that's only 33 inches by 60 inches. So, again, something that is really quite quite simple for us To look at but again the more time you spend it the more that that is revealed to you so here we see this man seated inside an all-night diner his back is towards us and also at the counter and if you, you it's a kind of triangular shaped wooden counter that these people are sitting at there's a couple a woman with red hair and we believe the model for that woman was the painter's wife, Joe Hopper, and she is accompanied by another man. They they have fedoras on, the typical hat that was worn by men um, in the United States in the 1940s. And then you've got the man who's waiting on them, who's inside the wooden counter, and he's got on his white jacket and his white little hat, and he seems to be bending over maybe to, to um, give them you know, their are silver service or napkins. But basically, this scene, unlike the Wedding Feast of Cana, this is a very quiet, quiet scene. Mm-hmm. And you wonder why these people are still up. Um, and then as you look at this, uh, we talked about in the Wedding Feast of Cana that brilliant blue sky. And what that gave us was this clarity of light. And in the Nighthawks, what we have is light that's provided by fluorescent lighting. So there's this weird kind of lime green glow to the whole painting. And that's because of the fluorescent lights. And an interesting point is that fluorescent lighting was a very new feature um, in the 1940s. So Edward Hopper is playing with something that is very new to life in America in the 1940s. But the other strange parts of this is that if you look at the street outside of this all-night diner, what you see, nobody is there. In fact, you look into the buildings. Architecture plays a very important role here, but we're in an urban setting. We don't have any fancy stone-carved columns here. These are brick buildings with storefront um, on the street level And we see a cash register in the store, but nothing's in the store itself. And certainly at this hour, all the stores are closed. And then the other fascinating part of this is that the artist has chosen not to provide us with a door so that we we don't know how these people got into the all-night diner. (laughs) We don't know how they're going to get out. So there's a really strange kind of quiet and a kind of uneasy um, sense of loneliness, really, that we see in the painting. And Hopper was interviewed and asked, you know, well, what are you getting at here? You know, are you getting at the fact that these people are depressed or they're melancholy? And he said, well, there might be a a bit of loneliness here. But there was recently um, an essay written about the painting and the curator from the Art Institute said what one should re- realize that, is not, that in 1942 when this was painted, it was shortly after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, um, which was on mm-hmm. December 7th in 1941. And there's a sense of kind of these people are awake. They, they can't go to sleep. And there's a sense of impending con- doom. Maybe the onset of mm-hmm. World War II could be read into the painting.
1: So that's insight, Claire Cunning from Art Muse LA. That is, is drinking with your eyes because what you're now teaching us is what exactly is the artist who's painting this experiencing, as if that could be something that comes through the brush into the paint onto the canvas. But if everybody's wondering, uh oh, what is now going to happen? that Hitler is in Europe creating havoc, and now the Japanese have just bombed Pearl Harbor, something ominous is about to occur, and cannot help but be in the artist who's inflicting that paint on the canvas. That's awesome to relate that. This is why you're, I I don't take drugs, I don't drink, I don't get high, but every time I talk to you, and I'm sure, Everyone mm-hmm. who experiences you at the museum with Art Muse LA, it's like it's the most wonderful high from just talking to you. You have a gift, thank and you. I just love that you share it with the world because it's special.
7: Huh. Th- thank I made
1: you. Made my day. I don't think we're gonna be able to get to three musicians and a Donnie Tondo this time. But and I didn't no, to no, be honest no. with you, Claire, I didn't even realize that I would do. A compare and contrast. It just happens spontaneously now, but the marriage of Cana is a perfect comparison piece to Edward Hopper's Nighthawks. Pretty interesting.
7: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, one one interesting point to make, and I'll be quick. Um, So the Nighthawks painting was painted in 1942. It was acquired by the Art Institute of Chicago that year. So the entire life of this painting by by Edward Hopper, Nighthawks, has been spent at one museum. We Mm -hmm. mentioned that the um, Veronese painting, the Wedding Feast at Cana, was commissioned for and placed in the dining room of son Giorgio Maggiore in Venice in 1563 when he finished it. And it was there for about 225 years until 1797 when... Napoleon came, took it off its stretchers, cut it in half, and took (laughs) it to Paris, where it then was stitched back together and placed in the the royal collection of the Louvre. So that painting, and and I think Rosen actually referred to to how um, difficult the life of the painting was, and that was because it had been stolen by Napoleon, when he, you know, it penetrated Italy, and he took it back as, as kind of um, booty from the war. And wow. it has been in, in France since then, but under wow. very good care and has recently been restored. And that's another thing Rosen mentioned, how beautifully Before, it has been restored. Yeah.
1: What do you think about the way he commands the language? It's like Vince oh. Scully commenting on Al Michaels is asking you to think about Uh, David Roseanne. I've got Claire Connie talking about David Roseanne like Vince Scully talking about Al Michaels. Incredible. (laughs) Listen, uh, before I let you go, how can the listeners keep in touch with you? What are you up to? Get involved. Tell us again, Art Muse LA, how to get a hold of you.
7: Sure. Well, these days we're basically doing virtual programs on Zoom, but they're lots Mm -hmm. of fun. Um, And they can go to our website, www.artmusela.com, and look at um, programs that we have coming up. We have Saturday series, and we're starting one in March, um, on women artists. And um, we're hoping soon to be able to get back into the museum so we can sit in front of these wonderful works of art and just drink them in. I am
1: blessed because Cedar sinai continues to sponsor the Weekend Warriors show. This is now the second year of their sponsorship, and I can't thank them enough. My whole career as a surgeon continues to be with them. But what I would love to say is if in six months, and I think I will still be doing this, we need to refocus and regroup, Uh, Claire Cunningham, because you're a big part of the success of this show. Thanks so much for being with us this morning.
7: Thank you, thank Such you. Such a pleasure. Congratulations on you. 10 year anniversary. Bye-bye. Thank you so
1: much, Claire. That's the great Claire Cunning from Art Muse LA. Listen, when you're wondering, what should I get her for a birthday present? What should I get him for a present? This is different. It's not like going to a jewelry store, it's better. You will never forget the experience, particularly when COVID is finally away, to be able to hire Claire Cunning and her staff to take you to the Norton Simon or take you to a museum here in L.A. with them standing next to you looking at a museum. It will change your life. Damn right. Coming up next, the clinic will be open. The number is 877-710-ESPN. And I got to talk about my 63 Corvette and Russ Mukai drinking with my eyes, teaching me what I'm looking at. You're listening to the one and only Weekend Warrior Show here on 710 ESPN.
6: Hey, it's Mace. You know, there is no better way to start your Saturday than with Dr.
2: Clapper and the Weekend Warrior Show, 7 to 9 a.m. Saturday mornings. What's going on, L.A.? This is Kobe Bryant. That's right. Mahalo. Aloha. Start your weekend off right, listening to the Weekend Warrior Show with Dr. Clapper. Ahoy hoy. Every Saturday morning from 7 to 9 a.m. on ESPN. 710, home of your Los Angeles Lakers.
1: Welcome back, Weekend Warriors. To Orange Crush. R.E.M. Why is Steve Follett playing that song? Because we're talking about learning how to drink with your eyes. From Magic Johnson to David Roseanne and our very own Claire Cunning. The world of art, the world of sports, the world of surgery. And your world. You, the Weekend Warrior. Yeah. Not just looking at something, but really seeing it. That's what gives meaning to your life. Beautiful. I'm having so much fun, I swear, I feel like I'm high above the clouds right now. Talking about art with people who really see deeply. Talking about sports with people who really see deeply. It's awesome. The clinic's open. The number is 877 espn Let's go to Joe. You're on with Dr. Clapper. How can I help you? Thanks for hanging on for so long.
0: Not a problem, Doc. Um, thank you. I love your show. Um,
1: do you like the art or is it just me, Joe? The fact that I am on a radio show talking about paintings without having you see the painting. I mean, you talk about something crazy,
0: but I love it. And I hope everybody else loves it. I, I do. And, and I love the way you... Uh, Use your clapper vision to explain injuries. Um, I was an athletic trainer for quite a few years in sports too, and worked with uh, pain management. So I was like, "So, lucky, Joe, I'm you know, going to complete what
1: I the tease. I'm going to take advantage of you being here. First of all, how old are you?
0: And you're an I athletic be, trainer. I used to be. Um, what do you I do was, now? I worked for some high schools, and I actually was in Atlanta with the USA track team.
1: Oh wow! Uh, how young 96. are you?
0: I'll be 62. God bless
1: you. So here's my Anthony Davis clapper vision. What exactly is Achilles tendinosis? Osis means there's something going on. So the Achilles tendon has something going on. What exactly is that? Well, if you look at the MRI of an Achilles tendon, you will see the strands look like two mops one straight up and down with the strands coming down, the strings, and one mop upside down but the strings are touching each other okay and Mm -hmm. the stick of the broom of the mop the one from above is anchored to the back of your knee the other mop handle made of wood is anchored to your heel bone and in between are the the mop strings and they're beautiful and they're straight and they're smooth and they glide and they're connected to those two mop handles with their two mop strings. That's what a normal MRI looks like of an Achilles tendon. Achilles tendinosis, where Anthony Davis says, I had soreness, but not tightness, means when we take an MRI, we will see a fattening of some of the mop strings. They're still connected. They haven't pulled apart. It's not an Achilles tendon rupture that we saw the great Kobe Bryant have, and Dominic Wilkins, and Mario Chalmers, and I can go on and on of all the Achilles tendon ruptures. No, it's not separated, it's just that it's bulging, it's thick in some of the strands, and that creates a soreness. And God bless Anthony Davis for shutting it down so that he is aware that if there is a weakness that can take place due to that soreness, due to that fattening of the mop string, that you are at risk for hurting it. Thank you, Kevin Durant. You know what I mean? So the bottom line is is you shut it down, which he did, and look at what he did last night in, in beating John Moran. So for for those of you who want to know what a clapper vision is of Anthony Davis, there it is. And now it's time for clapper. me to take care of you, Joe. So what's up with you?
0: Um, years ago, I guess around 1999, 98, I had a knee injury playing softball. It was a reverse hit on the knee where I guess it was kind of like Joe Geisman's, where um, Mm. they got kicked backwards, tore the MCL, and some other issues. Um, Unfortunately, at that time, the orthopedic surgeon I worked with wasn't available, went with another one. Uh And what he did, um, I've worked with orthopedics afterwards, and they have no clue why he did it but i have a large staple still in uh the knee at the mm-hmm. base of the mcl apparently he d- he drilled a hole through my femur and ran some fishing wire through there i don't know why but mm-hmm. the staple's still in there and mm-hmm. i'm a lefty so i plant you know the left leg and turn to try and throw i can't do that anymore and to this mm-hmm. day that staple if i just touch over it it's very very sensitive and all right this is what i
1: suggest for you joe and i by the way am more than happy to help you do not let anybody talk you into stem cells synvis cortisone i don't want anybody sticking a needle in your knee please you do not need dye injected into your knee for contrast no you just need a regular mri please go and get that if you have trouble Again, I've already given out a prize already today that they can come see me. You know what? God bless you for hanging on the phone for so long. You can come and see me also, and I will take care of it if you want. Because the next move is an investigation of your knee. If that MRI shows that the other structures are well-maintained, then taking that staple out, which is tricky, but I've done this thousands of times, by leaving the good structures alone, you will get relief. The key question is, is there after all these years more damage in your knee you and i need to learn and i will help you get through this and i want to thank you so much for being a loyal weekend warrior so you'll call my office and tell them i said it's okay if you want and thanks so much joe and by the way you're a total stranger and i'm helping you you can thank me by finding a total stranger and doing something nice for them today and thanks so much for listening okay young man i appreciate it very much warriors Coming up next, next week I should say, we're gonna talk about something called the biceps tendon. But before I leave you, you know I love to talk about food. My week was enriched this week because I went to Trader Joe's and I went, you would think, to the chocolate section and you'd be right, but I didn't get
0: chocolate.
1: I did, but that's not what we're gonna talk about today. I got something this week at Trader Joe's that now I've bought four containers of because I'm addicted to it. It's the greatest thing you put in the palm of your hand and one at a time nibble on. They're called pecan pralines. It's not just pecans that they sugar-coated. They somehow have dripped them into maple syrup. And allowed it to harden. So it's maple syrup, sugar, crusty, crunchy, on a crunchy pecan. Pecan pralines, Trader Joe's. My life is now forever changed. And so will yours. I want to talk about my 63 Corvette, but I may have to do it next week. Because it's too much of a good story of what I learned. A Jewish guy lifting the hood of a car and seeing an engine. That was my life this week on Wednesday, and it was fantastic. Next week, we're going to talk about the biceps tendon. I want to thank you all for listening and being with me each and every Saturday and telling your friends. Steve Paulette, you're amazing. But remember, you want to enjoy your life? Volare. Singing, flying. Because you learn how to drink with your eyes. That's the secret. Passion for art, for sports, for me, for surgery, but for you, with your family, your work, your life, learn to drink with your eyes. Until next week, I'll see you on the radio.